If you have Bibles, could you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Please note, we're going to have to head off soon after the end. So if you want anything from the bookstore, the library stuff over here, uh, grab it quickly. Our plan is we're going to uh, run the two pretty much together. So I'm going to say something first, and then we'll just have a five-minute break to stretch our legs. Susan will go on, because they're very much related, and all to do with the practical. I've divided this, uh, this session into three parts again. Uh, the title of the uh, of this uh, talk being Responsibility, the Responsibility of Parents. And uh, the three parts are, first of all, the appropriate context of responsibility, and that's where I want to look at uh, 2 Corinthians 12. Secondly, the absoluteness of our responsibility, the absoluteness of our responsibility, and thirdly, the Achilles heel of our responsibility today. Now, we're, we're deliberately turning you know, from the uh, more, more theoretical to the practical, from the framework to asking, now, how does it work? And, uh, and both of these talks, I hope, will allow plenty of time for discussion. Now, in relation to the first, I think the appropriate context of parental responsibility has to be seen not in terms of authority, though it includes that, but of what I call service. And here we have this uh, wonderful uh, guide uh, to our parenting in the analogy that Paul uses, he not being a parent in the natural sense. Just let's read it. 2 Corinthians 12, 14. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I'll not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you, after all, and here's the analogy, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So, and this is the key, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have <coughs> and expend myself as well. You see, he is giving us a clue to what parenting is really about, the heart of it. The responsibility is not First of all, authority. As I say very carefully, it includes it. The responsibility is to be found somewhere else. And I'm suggesting it is in this phrase, I am prepared, I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. There is no true parenting where that is not uh, the ideal. I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. Or as the AV, I think, phrases it, to spend and be spent. Do you remember it? Mm -hmm. To spend and be spent. Now, is this true of us, those of us who are parents? Mm -hmm. Is that the key idea that we have as we think of our responsibility? Now, I look back on so much um, as, a, as a parent myself, and as Susan said, we have four of our own natural children and two who are orphaned, who are not adopted, but we were testamentary guardians, and gladly so, and they have lived with us, uh, a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old um, on the 18th, uh, and they've lived with us for seven years. And I look back on so much that I've done wrong, and I think that's a natural thing, just a sense of, of um, having failed them in so many ways, and I think that's not only natural in the sense that um, we're all conscious of our failings, but it, it's also biblically natural in the sense that we look back 
as we see read scripture and we see that uh, everyone in scripture is marked in this way and that's why paul says uh, but one thing i do you remember in philippians chapter 3 one thing i do and how does he go on forgetting what is behind forgetting what is behind and pressing forward to to the goal but Having said that, I, I do say, and I hope it, it's not, uh, it doesn't sound egotistical when I say this, but I, we had a lovely experience this week. Our daughter is getting married, our third daughter, on the uh, 1st of January, and uh, they're having pastoral visits from our, uh, our pastor, and um, he knows our family well. And he, he, he gave what I would love to be an epitaph, and I think should be the ideal uh, epitaph for any Christian parent, and that is, um, I don't know what your parents did, he said, but they produced lovely children. And, and it's, that surely is what we're on about as parents, is, is not to have high achievers and so on and so forth, but to have people who are truly the image of God. Now, I'm not saying that any of our children are perfect, you know, far from it. But there, there was, I think, um, within our joint commitment, and I think Susan was outstanding in this, this desire to really serve them. And uh, we did it in all sorts of ways. Susan will say more about this. But for me, it was things like reading stories, which I continue to do. Um, we don't have a television. I'll say more about that. Um, and uh, it, it gives us an opportunity to have that family time. And we did this um, sort of faithfully, day in and day out, with some exceptions. But it was a fundamental commitment to give them a lovely time. And, for example, at one point, we had... Uh, someone who, whom we fostered for about a year and a half, and she came in with the, you know, the typical attitude, read a story? <laughs> oh, come on, yeah. Uh, this is not nearly exciting enough. And by the time she left us, she couldn't have enough. She had realized the richness of this, not just in terms of listening to a story, you understand what I mean, but more the whole ethos that was generated, that here we were together as a family, and... Um, and enjoying something together and being able to share ideas, some books, um, with profound concepts in them. For example, I'm reading C.S. Lewis at the moment and we've just finished, um, we've just finished, um, The Magician's Nephew about creation, the beauty of creation. I mean, those are profound concepts and evil, you know. We're going on to the horse and his boy and so on. But you see, for me, I'm just trying to illustrate this. For me, as a, as a father, very busy, etc., etc., too many things, rushing around, uh, thinking that I was indispensable in too many areas, um, that, that took a deliberate choice and was costly. That's what I'm saying. It's a, it's a choice to... And, and I, I would come up and, white-faced, you know, flop down in the chair and say, I wish I, I didn't have to do that, in a sense, from, my, from the point of view of what was comfortable. And, that, and then for each of us in our own situations, something like that is involved. And there has to be this choice over and over again to spend and be spent. It seems to me this is the first responsibility. We went for walks. Uh, we went camping together. I used to sing choruses to them as they went to sleep at night. And I've now made a tape of it. And so it's now going on the, grand, the grandchildren's generation uh, out there in Joomla. And it's their favorite tape. And again, I don't say so. I'm just trying to illustrate the sorts of ways in which, and, and it was a blessing to me. All of these things have been a blessing. None of them an expense in the ultimate sense, something that I've lost. It's quite the opposite. I've gained. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I wanted to focus on first. I'm going to just deal with this very briefly. The first thing is, 
uh, the responsibility to serve, to spend and be spent. The second, the absoluteness of our responsibility. So the appropriate context, the absoluteness. This is a responsibility which we cannot discard for any reason. No matter how difficult the culture is in which we live, we have to, I'll just use a phrase, we have to make it work. Have any of you visited Glasgow and uh, seen outside Glasgow the, um, the little room uh, in which David Livingston was raised? Any hands up? Yeah, some of you. You know what I mean. Was that easy? One room, whole family. We think we've got a problem. Uh, I remember in, uh, in New Zealand I was introduced to a very elderly woman who took out her photograph album and she showed me her family, photographed the family, 12 children, all living in a not very large house. And her comment was, we were perfectly happy. Yeah. And uh, they weren't from the, you know, the upper drawer. They, they were just ordinary, um, ordinary people, not, no, no uh, uh, money in, involved, no, no uh, wealth involved. And I think we can exaggerate the problem that we have in our own context and forget that each generation has had its own struggle. However, having said that, I do believe we have very, very uh, extreme pressures upon us today. And that's wh where I'll come to the third uh, aspect, which is the Achilles heel of our responsibility. But before I say that, it seems to me we have to see in relation to the absoluteness of our responsibility, that nothing can come between us and that responsibility before God. As I said earlier today, uh, no school, no clubs, no youth groups, no church, etc., uh, must take priority over that responsibility. We are, at the end of the day, going to stand before God and give an account for this great responsibility. And how have we acquitted ourselves? Now, I, I feel the, the central issue, and I've touched on this already, and I've spoken to some of you individually over lunch, the central issue for us is in the area of convictions. Now, you see, I feel that convictions both about ideas and convictions about a way of life. And we must have convictions. If we do not, we will be swept away by the current. And I was, I was interested in thinking of the intellectual for, for, the, uh, for a moment uh, by a review that I read uh, recently, uh, a book by the name of the, se uh, uh, entitled The Secularization of the Academy. The Secularization of the Academy. In other words, all these academies, which we, we were speaking about earlier, uh, founded by Christians, now secularized. How did this take place? How is it that it could have been a Christian culture and then all of that heritage lost? And um, the book is by Marsden and Longfield in the United States, and the review is very perceptive. And he quotes, The overall picture of the change from 1850 to 1990 is one of growing intellectual confusion on the part of Christians. Nor does it seem that the change which came over the believers corresponds to what is usually meant by a loss of faith. In other words, it wasn't as if people were losing their faith. There were many who did. But thinking of those who didn't, it wasn't that they lost their faith. What was lost, he goes on, rather, was the confidence 
and the ability to make a public argument for what was increasingly seen to be a private good. I'll read that again. What was lost, rather, was the confidence and the ability to make a public argument for what was increasingly seen to be a private good. Now, I believe, and I say this with all gentleness, that the vast majority of evangelicalism has not yet addressed this issue, though we live in the 90s, though we have had prophets before us who've urged this upon us decades ago, we've had a tremendous uh, avalanche within the church itself of all kinds of distractions leading us to this thing, leading us to that thing, none of which is necessarily wrong in and of itself, but which are not central, which are not foundational. They are clearly within Scripture, things which are peripheral, and we have allowed our convictions, therefore, about the truth uh, to meander on in this sense of confusion which uh, these men describe. Convictions about truth. So we have to be interested in ideas ourselves. Susan and I have been invited to, to the States to... Uh, homeschool conferences, and we went to Nashville in January, and um, it was tremendously encouraging, all sorts of ways, because as you know, the homeschool movement in the States has taken off in a big way, and there were a 1,500, I think, um, homeschoolers who were all there at this conference, and we were very impressed by them in all sorts of ways, and what they're doing with their children, the imaginativeness of what they're doing, etc. Um, but what struck us was that so many of them were concerned about the education of their children, which, of course, is entirely right and, and appropriate in that context, yes, but had not yet seen the responsibility they had for their own education in these areas that we're speaking about. How are we going to make a public statement? How are we going to give an apologia, as, as Paul did before Agrippa and Festus? in Acts 26. What are we going to say? Are we able, as he did, to go out and challenge the thinking of this culture? That is our calling, to confront uh, the, the uh, ideas which, as I described in, this morning, um, are now so pitiably wanting, and where there is a tremendous po uh, uh, possibility if we would but do it. But do we know how to do it? Without clear convictions, uh, how did Paul put it? If the trumpet doesn't make a clear uh, sound, who will get out there to fight? So clear convictions about ideas and clear convictions about life. This is the absoluteness of our responsibility. It all turns on us, that we would grasp this responsibility and over against the influences of any other organization ensure that our children, our own children, not to be selfish about it, <coughs> but that it is a responsibility before God that our children would grow up to know the truth and be able to give an account of it and have that sense of excitement uh, <coughs> about truth so that they're not uh, bowled over the first time they run into, say, postmodernism in the university and are able to grapple with it. <laughs> and then convictions about life. Now, this brings me to the third thing, and that is the Achilles heel. What are our convictions? Uh, just recently, you probably all read this last week, um, there was uh, an article about the, um, the, uh, the musical Hair, which was revived. Did you all see what happened to it? Ran for a few weeks. 
collapsed. Production costing £1.5 million and losing £15,000 per week. Now look how the, 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 um, the writer of this particular article starts. The sun has finally gone down on the age of Aquarius. Here, the musical that epitomized the 60 zeitgeist. The zeitgeist just means the spirit of the age. Now how does he describe it? The zeitgeist of peace, that's pacifism, pot, free love, and rock and roll. Rock and roll. And it seems to me that the Achilles heel that we, we face is that we have, as I've described earlier today, we have these uh, forces uh, at large which impinge upon us, whether we like it or not, incredibly powerful forces, particularly through the media, <coughs> and which exude this zeitgeist. Now, the point about, about hair is that what was shocking in the 60s, you know, that final scene, I didn't go to see it, but a frontal nudity as the curtains come down at the end. Yeah. Whoa, how amazing, how exciting. Let's all go. Tremendous success. Today, this is, it hasn't affected anyone. This is tame. We have gone on, as the article points out, um, to hard drugs, economic hardship, sex and violence in the media. Think of um, Madonna. Sex and violence in the media and arts. The 60s seem an age of innocence that happened several centuries ago. This is how rapidly this whole thing is moving. Now, my point is this. In respect to these things, we have also to have very clear convictions. What are they? I'd say just to simplify, express it in a, in a single statement, it must be to resist this zeitgeist. Not to be dragged into the spirit, to live with a totally different atmosphere surrounding us. And I would single out two primary influences here and just touch on them very briefly. The first is the media and the second, education. Now, I told you the incident about um, the um, Walt Disney uh, film, the program, and the tragedy of that. Um, but but just, just reflect how children are affected by all these films that are coming out, not, not to mention the television, and, and not to mention the TV games, etc. And uh, Neil Postman, very interestingly, in his, this is in his book, uh, Technopoly, and also in uh, his book, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, he points out that the, the real problem confronting us is not what we watch, but that we watch. Mm. Not what we watch, but that we watch. I have come to that same conviction, that there is something about this medium which is addictive, and which uh, is not only addictive, um, but also to is something which fills the screen, if I can use that phrase, fills the screen of people's lives so that life becomes entertainment. And he has this one section in his book, which I'll read now, where I, just to sort of summarize the whole problem that we're confronting, he draws a distinction between 1984, uh, uh, Orwell's uh, 1984, which has a very harsh totalitarian um, government uh, in control, where Big Brother is watching you all the time. And he draws a, a, a contrast between that and the famous book by Aldous Huxley uh, called Brave New World. 
uh, written in the 30s. And he, he says this, spiritual devastation is more likely, spiritual devastation is more likely to come from an enemy with a smiling face than from one whose countenance exudes suspicion and hate. In the Huxleyan prophecy, Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. Now, there was, a, I didn't see uh, Zuropa, but um, uh, U2, you know, the concert that recently uh, has this striking um, opening, I gather, had. It's now finished, but those of you who saw it, um, uh, Bono has this uh, remote control and huge ba bank of TVs, massive TV screens, and he flicks through them, and apparently it opened, the whole thing, the whole program opened, with uh, him flashing from, say, uh, Bosnia to something a little bit... Um, uh, less dramatic at the moment, but uh, the starving millions in Africa. And on each, each occasion, say, oh, this is too bad, this is too bad. Finally coming to Wimbledon Tennis, I will settle for this, he says. And then these words, which are prophetic, wherever you two is, in and of itself, in terms of Christianity, wherever they are, rather, um, prophetic, we have a new idol in this culture, the television. Now, now, my dear brothers and sisters, I am not suggesting that when you look at a television screen, you are being sinful. I am not saying that. I'm very deliberately not saying that here is a thing where we reject the medium as, as such in, in, a, in, in a total sense. But I've, I've coined a phrase, I'll try to explain it. I think we are at that point where we need to develop what I call media monasticism. Media monasticism. Now, the parallel here, uh, why I use this expression, is that in the 6th century, uh, there had been the collapse of the Roman Empire. And our Christian forebears at that time were surrounded by bar barbarism. The Huns and the Vandals and the, uh, the, the, um, the Goths and the Visigoths had poured down through Italy, down through Spain, into North Africa. They were surrounded, overwhelmed. What did they do? And if you see the documentary series, uh, which John Roberts did, um, called The Tri uh, Triumph of the West, there's a very dramatic scene when he starts to show you where the West really began. He's standing on the Alps, and he says there are these three great rivers which flow out from here, uh, one to the north, and one to the east, and one to the west. And then he takes you down, and the very next scene is of the monastery founded by Benedict, the famous Benedict, through whom we have the Benedictine order. And al although he has carefully and rightly said there are the Greek and the Roman influences into our civilization, into our culture, he traces the uniqueness of this whole civilization to what these 10 or 12 men did together and the influence that had in Christianizing the whole of Europe. Now, of course, the same could be said of those um, who... who um, formed what we call the Celtic Church. Jonathan and I were talking about this over lunch. Uh, here was barbarism, paganism, surrounding them, and yet within that, they made a deliberate choice not to imbibe the atmosphere of that pagan culture, but to stand aside from it, not in any sense rejecting culture per se. I mean, think of the creativity of the monasteries. Think of the intellectual achievements of the, of the monasteries. And I'm not ad advocating celibacy in saying this. Obviously. 
I'm just saying that here we see a a mindset which which was unwilling to give in to the zeitgeist of that age. And in order, not just to reject something, but to come to something better, to create something better, they uh, formed these, these small communities, which, as I say, were not committed against culture. The whole of what's called Middle Ages civilization emerged from their culture, intellectually, for example. And so Charlemagne was, was educated by monks. And I'm not advocating a, a precise repetition of that. I'm calling, I think, for something similar in terms of our own convictions, that here is something which has gone so seriously wrong that we have deliberately to step away from it, not to reject something so much as to create something completely new. I hope this point, point is clear. But listen to the seriousness. If we do not do this, and I feel that um, our culture could be described as becoming increasingly Hindu, by which I mean increasingly irrational. And if any of you have been to India, and I don't, this is not a uh, culturally chauvinistic uh, comment, um, it is just confusion, worse confounded, in almost every area of life. And the reason is that their religion is essentially irrational. You don't ask questions, is this right or is this wrong? You ask, what does my caste demand of me? What is my group doing? Are we all going off to sacrifice at such and such a shrine? One doesn't ask, is it right or wrong? One just does it. And that mentality, that is the sheep meekly following along, um, whoever leads them, is the mentality that increasingly describes our, our culture today, an irrational culture. And um, to go back to, to Neil Postman, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression, but in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. They will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. We must understand the television as a medium, and not only the te television, but uh, radio can also do this if it is not properly used. And radio sounds more and more like the television, incidentally. Um, that after a while, you're just not thinking straight. Why would these boys go and lie down in the middle of the street? What Orwell feared were those who would, who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there'd be no one who wanted to read them. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much, think of it now, the information just being churned out, so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. Now, you know, what's the big thing in L.A., and it's, all, it's always coming to us from L.A., the big thing, 
are the virtual reality arcades, and you've seen them in the press recently, virtual reality arcades. And finally, in 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they're controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Now, I just read that as sort of a general comment on the state of affairs which we find ourselves within, and we must resist it. We must resist that. Now, I say this very carefully, two uh, qualifications. First of all, this call for media monasticism, as I've, as I've described it, must not be four things. Not isolationist in spirit, not legalist, not pietist, and not Anabaptist. Let me explain those things. <laughs> not isolationists, obviously. Not where they withdraw from culture per se. <coughs> and let me say, in relation to that, my second point, we must deliberately encourage people to be able to go into the media, to become journalists, uh, to become filmmakers, to, uh, to understand the culture and be creative into it. Sculptors, uh, artists, authors, etc., etc. It's not from a spirit of isolation. Secondly, not legalist in spirit. That's not measuring how much television a certain family watches that's different from our own. Or that they would have a television, etc., etc. That's the legalist spirit. Nothing like that. Thirdly, not pietist, as if our own spirituality involves us within the church and not in the public arena. Now, this would be very apparent by what we do, committing ourselves, for example, to the um, social and p political problems which surround us. And fourthly, not Anabaptist, in the sense of feeling that the way forward is to have more and more Christian communities that are completely isolated from the culture. Now, you see overlap between all those. We must resist that, anything <coughs> like that. And at the same time, as I said, to encourage some to go into the media and reform it. But with a completely different conviction to that of the zeitgeist which surrounds us. The second thing, very hurriedly, is about school. And here, of course, it's a very complex subject. But both formally and informally, it seems to me, uh, school bears enormous pressure upon our children. <coughs> and uh, in a sense, uh, it's, it's uh, inescapable. Uh, formally, for example, through the philosophy which is expressed uh, in, in all sorts of ways within any kind of, um, of discipline. For example, C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Abolition of Man, uh, bases the whole thing upon a, an English textbook, which he calls the Green Book, which is, this which is uh, expressing, in its treatment of the English language, um, this alternative philosophy, humanism. And I'm just running into people all the time uh, who are saying we're having postmodernism thrust on us in every single discipline. Now, there are these myths like evolution, the myth of progress, etc., etc. We must be clear that, um, that those formal influences of, of, the, uh, of the schools um, are challenged. For example, today, with, with uh, political correctness in mind, that all cultures are equal and ours is the worst. I mean, this is a mythology which we have to challenge. Informally, just through peer pressure. Um, the influence upon young people when they are immature and where they are being molded so much by what surrounds them is enormous. Now, what do we do with this? 
There's no simple answers, and I'm not asking, uh, suggesting that there's just a general withdrawal. Far from it. But whatever we do, as I said, in relation to our absolute responsibility before God, we have to do something. And some are doing uh, all they can to, uh, within the uh, system of education that exists, both private and, and public, uh, trying to improve the situation. Others are called to other alternatives. <laughs> I've suggested homeschool, other kinds of school. Uh, this, I think, is a very imaginative uh, example where we are today. There are alternatives if we seek for them and pray for them. Uh, but in any event, what I'm drawing attention to now is this um, Achilles heel of our living in a culture where we're surrounded, bombarded by uh, technology and by these ideas which are communicated by the media, and we have to resist it. And so within all this, as I've said in conclusion, we return to our starting point. Our culture is in crisis principally because the ideas which have influenced it are wrong and therefore destructive. And we have to recover a conviction about truth. In a sense, throw the challenge back at Mr. Major and ask, what do you mean by traditional values? And uh, if, you, if you have the opportunity to talk to any about this, point out the impossibility of establishing values per se outside of a Christian worldview. Now, if, if that doesn't mean a great deal to you, the tape catalog has got dozens, literally dozens of tapes dealing with just that issue. That is the challenge, the confrontation of non-Christian thought. Not just Western humanist thought, but all non-Christian thought. The question you see is unanswerable. Within a materialistic worldview, there is no answer to values. That's why I read from Appleyard. On the maps which science provides us with, we have, we find everything except ourselves. And Appleyard has again a very interesting comment about um, the whole idea of pluralism. There is a further important sign of the terminal decadence of scientific liberalism. Liberal thought, he says, had long sought a specifically liberal definition of values and virtue. We'll, we'll find an alternative, was, was the, the claim uh, of this Enlightenment philosophy. All, he says, have failed because the idea is clearly impossible. How could plurality and tolerance alone provide a basis for concepts like justice or the good? And we must explode this myth of neutrality. The whole of life is religious. The most significant things that are happening in the world, even today, even today, even in our secularized West, are religious. The philosophic ideas which a culture has are the most significant aspect of their culture. And we must challenge that. Philosophically, uh, theologically, religiously uncommitted uh, a society uh, spells disaster for that society as a whole. Because no culture can survive without a moral framework. So in conclusion, we live in a truly awesome moment in world history. The rest of the world, even if reluctantly and somewhat defiantly, still looks for solutions and a measure of hope to the Western dream. And the West, as I said earlier, is intellectually and socially bankrupt. Furthermore, the power of the media seems irresistible. We need not be defeated if we recover our convictions about God's truth and its life-giving properties in every sphere of life, both private and public, 
and then live within and hence radiate a completely different <coughs> atmosphere to the zeitgeist of disillusioned, dispirited, and decadent modernity. Now let me leave it there without questions and we'll take a break for five minutes. Is that all right, John? Final session is, how it seems to me, the way it's been entitled, is tips about how we brought up our children, <laughs> which is always slightly different from um, the theory. But Reynolds giving quite a, a lot of solid warning and setting the scene. So I think what I'll do, there's not much time left, um, will be to share some of the practical things that we found very useful. I've written a, a book which is over there, if you want to grab a copy and didn't know about it, called For the Children's Sake, which <coughs> is basically uh, about some of the practical, positive steps one can take. So it's not just saying, we don't like our culture, we feel that everybody around us basically is putting over a point of view which leaves God out completely, the world that he's made, the way we're to live, <coughs> but um, in contrast then, how can we bring pe children up in a different atmosphere? And I, I was sitting there listening to Ronald and thinking if there was one thing that um, I certainly was very conscious of during those years, our youngest child incidentally that um, was born to us is, is 20 and 21 and at university. So we have been through the cycle and have been grandparents to two different sets of, of um, children, families. We've watched it. One thing which I was very aware of was that the family should be a center of gravity of life. It has happened in our generation with the pressure and the speed at which people are living that the family has become more and more a place just to go to bed to grab meals, to have your clothes washed. The um, picture of people getting home by the time it's dark outside, well, here in the UK, in the winter, that's a lot of hours at home. And people used to do things. They would play games, they would read stories, they would have long conversations around meal tables, arguments and discussions. This isn't... Um, just a theoretical, when we were first married, we took a trip up to Scotland, up to the Orkneys, actually, where Ranald's mother's family had been from. And we discovered simple, croft families, good minds, they read books, and after they had finished their practical work, they would sit around the fire discussing all sorts of things. Labria is supposed to be a place for intellectual discussion, but I was amazed, and I felt most of us um, would not come up so well in our family life. They, they read, they discussed, and the children weren't put to bed. <coughs> this isn't what I did, because um, we found that it was very useful to put children to bed quite early. <laughs> And yet the children would listen to these discussions, discussions and one of Ronald's elderly, his mother's cousin who's now died, said, ah, oh, but how would the children learn anything if they weren't around while you were talking about all these things? Now, Ronald was talking about a mind. 
how do we develop minds think? Well, first of all, the family, the home, has to be alive. There should be work going on there, creativity. Well, that makes a mess. You know, the creativity of children means dressing up and paint all over the place and etc., etc. Creativity means maybe you like going to bed at a certain time or doing something, but your your older children just get into a really important discussion late at night. They invariably will, of course. <laughs> it has to be late, of course. And the the pulse of life, Ranald said, to spend and be spent takes a lot of servicing. This may not be a very good picture, but your car is not going to go very far if you don't go and get some petrol into it. Well, the family being a center of life needs a lot of input. So, for instance, if you're going to be in a live place, you're going to have to cook for all those people who turn up and clean up after them. And if you're going to encourage your children to ask questions and discuss anything, you've got to find some answers. Well, that's going to mean reading some extra books and doing some extra homework yourself. So it's not, sometimes it's more convenient to not have people asking questions, not doing things. We need to stand against the trend of emptying out the family as a center of life, of living, of enjoyment. Not so long ago, families, Sunday was a family day in our culture, where families would be together, they would visit each other, they would have a big Sunday dinner, perhaps sit out in the garden in the summer or take a walk, be together. That has largely disappeared. It's another day for frenetic activity. Clubs and things may seem all very well. In the evenings, people we think, oh good, you know, but now I have to drive the children to ballet, now they have their violin lesson, now there's youth club. And where is this life? Now the next thing is, if we're going to have our families be a center of life, it's going to take some planning and some routine, and there's going to be other things we don't do, very profitable things. And we must schedule, for instance, if you're going to have a meal together, you say no to certain other things. You may say no to your telephone. You may take the telephone off the hook. You can't read a story and have a meal and have discussion if you keep disappearing to the telephone. And um, <clears throat> nor can you say yes to everybody, all the things people ask you to do. You need to say no. This schedule, this routine, we can change it, but for the moment we take this day as a day off with our children, our family. We're going to go out for a walk together or our older children are coming home from university with their friends, we're going to be at home. No, we're not going to go do something else. We will be there. We will have a meal. There'll be a fire in the fireplace. The scene is set. People, uh, children, teenagers gravitate to food and warmth. And um, <laughs> if you want discussion, and if you want that sort of thing, you can set the scene and encourage it. Uh, there's a lot that you can do about that. Also, you, you need to be there, and you need also to not um, be irritated when they put up the exact opposite point of view. Now, our children know how to get Ranald up. You can tell by his passionate talk just then. You know, they say how wonderful television is, or rock music or something. And then 
you need to not be put out by this opposite point of view. Children of between 10 and some of them much earlier, 14, but they go through this stage where they will say the exact opposite of what you're saying. And they need to be able to discuss it as an opinion and support their view. And you say, well, that's an interesting idea. And then what would happen? And then? And this atmosphere of discussion, of being together, and then of enjoying life, of having time where you, you laugh, and time to be angry. One of the things we liked about going out for a walk regularly with children, we had children of such different ages that that was a practical thing to do. You could have people quite upset, angry, cross, irritated, grown-ups as well as children. And a day together gave time to regroup in different arrangements, have a picnic, and very often by the end, difficult things had been worked through. People, again, felt friendly, had been able to talk over the things that were getting to them. The time and the space to do that. We live in a generation where everything, this, this idea of artificial entertainment, <coughs> Um, we as adults feel intimidated by our homegrown <coughs> occupations. Everything seems so bright and amazing. And in fact, the greatest disservice we can do for children is to bring them up to be um, entertainment-orientated. The simpler their childhood and the more time they get when they're little for real play, the, the better that is for them. So that they have, for instance, well, just sticks and stones. How much better to have a copse and, and woods and a bit of a stream to play in and to jump off on than any amount of adventure playgrounds. Now, if you're living in a city and that's what you have, maybe you have transport. We lived in London with two young children. We didn't have a car. And once a week, we caught the Green Line bus and went out to the country, and that's how we spent our day off. Ranald, bless him, the father, he packed the pack with, a, at one stage, a potty swim, swinging off the back. <laughs> we had a toddler who wouldn't use, just sort of being lifted up. So he had to have a potty. And um, we would go and have an entire day in the country. And then come back by bus. It was my lifeline. You know how many wives with toddlers and babies end up very depressed and closed in? I was a great lover of beauty. Gave me time with my husband. The children look back on playing, hiding behind bushes, trees, etc. Very simple things are the richest things you can give your children that don't cost money. The most wonderful bit books right now are being tipped out of our public libraries in favor of more and more color books for projects with less and less print in it. And the lovely books that have lots of chapters in that you could read out loud um, biographies of Beethoven and Mayer de Jong and C.S. Lewis and the Secret Garden once it's all been a bit tatty. You can get those even if you're quite poor and build up a wonderful library. And children will love to hear stories. Start, of course, ideally when they're young. But even older children can be captured and just say, this is a story I enjoy. We enjoy. This atmosphere and enjoy it. It is possible to create an alternative, a different atmosphere for one's children. Not everybody may agree with me, but I was supposed to say what we did. Um, we we didn't encourage our children to have everybody over to play. 
there were some children who you can't rehabilitate the entire where well, we were living <laughs> in whatever, wherever you're living. And you start out. And there were children whose friendships we encouraged. They were constructive and do because we, because of this rather unusual happening, we're still bringing up children. So we're trying it out in the 90s. But um, there were children who were frenetic. That was the word we used. Destructive. Rushing around, pulling things down. They would never settle into, if they were the little girls, the endless dressing up, play acting. Well, they climbed as well and built and boys were forever making things of Lego and this, that, and the other thing settled hours of play. There were children who would be destructive, rush about, pull things to pieces. They somehow weren't at, at our house, so very, very, very many hours, <laughs> as everybody else was, uh, which we did. We encouraged our children, if you want to know, to have lots of relationships. That is one of those free things which will, will stand them in good stead for the rest of their life. To be friends, to have friends, to have deep friendships. Another great one of, if you ask me, what is one of the greatest gifts we were given as Christian parents was other Christian families who were also bringing up their children in fairly similar ways. Happily, not exactly the same. That was very, very enriching. We had some extremely close friends who had quite different ideas, for instance, about television. I'm very glad about that. Because if you have particular views. Your children are very glad to have somebody with slightly different views. <laughs> but under the same general umbrella of whose authority? Now, authority is important, and that is God's authority. It is God's authority. So that we, the child has to obey us, but we are also obeying. We are also under authority. And the father is responsible to see that he, too, is following this model. And that is what he is asking for from all of us. You know, even the dog runs, our dogs do, have done through the years, but they really obey Ranald. And with me, they sort of look well and wag their tail and go off. You know, little boys of 12 and 13 are very similar to puppy dogs. And um, the mother says, no, 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 and it turns into nagging. The father. <coughs> and just like little puppy dog, um, along they come. I'm watching you, says the father. Now, this sense of authority is a wonderful, safe structure for freedom. It's like the, f the fence around the field so that the sheep can be f free, safe. Any of you who've worked with children or damaged children will know that and quite normal children will test authority. They see, are, do they really mean what they say? Will they? They do it about between one and two years old. They start very young. And then they repeat it at various intervals. It gets very bad sometimes. And you need to be quite sure that what you're asking for is right. But not because I say it's right, not because it would give me a headache, but because God says this is right. And behind me is mother, is this wonderful father, who's great help to this, and we are all living under this structure. Now, the reason I say this here is the greatest help to us was other families who were sharing this same structural sense of what is right and wrong, what is good, what, is, um, what are the aims that we have for our children. You see, the aims that we have for our children are different. The aims that our society has for children is to be the winners, to be the ones with the big salaries, to be fashionable, and to get the highest academic accolade. Christians are different. 
That is, God has made us each different. And your child, who, um, for instance, we have two of our four children are dyslexic. And they have tremendous gifts. And in fact, they have, both, both of these children have succeeded academically as well. But not quite the same as, say, another close friend whose son is at Cambridge this year. That is not what God is looking for. That's not what we as parents look for. We look for a heart that is loving and that wants God's will and is in enjoying the life that he gives and is willing to serve the other people that is fulfilled for them as a person. Some of them are artistic. Some of them are great givers. Some of them are great planners and are already figuring things out and building bridges and everything when they're five, six years old. One of the interesting things, being a parent to a lot of children, is to say, I wonder who this child is. And there's a grain in the wood, and encouraging that grain. We as Christians can do that more than others, because we don't need the status symbols for worthwhileness. You see, if we have a Down syndrome baby, if we have somebody who isn't going to make it into this wonderful society where everybody was supposed to be so perfect and everything, we can believe and know. We're not just putting this on. They are just as precious as your child who's a premature Einstein. It doesn't actually matter. Now, if you share your parenting with a few other families, Christian families, who also hold this very high respect for the person, for God's values, for an enjoyment of life, that is a great game. Do look out for friendships between other families because one of the things which matters to children is that they need to feel accepted and a little bit like somebody else. I mean, it's very hard to be completely like anybody else that you've ever known. When you're a teenager nowadays, <coughs> you feel embarrassed if you're a virgin. Isn't that awful? Our children feel embarrassed if they have not had sexual, have not been sexually active. They feel embarrassed when they go to the doctor when they're in their 20s and say, actually, I've not been having sexual intercourse. I'm coming to marriage as a virgin. That is embarrassing to our children. It's terrible. What a reversal even from the late 50s, early 60s, where in fact one's friends, um, that was considered quite a good thing to come to marriage, new, fresh. Not so now, how wonderful to give them friends whose parents and families also share so that they can have friends to discuss, say, the problems of being a teenager and the sexual pressures put on them in sixth form in university with other families. Not everything do our children want to talk about with mother and father, mummy and daddy at any stage. How wonderful to have other trusted adults with whom to sometimes discuss those things that seem just working through. How wonderful to have other families that you can go, say, visiting or go on holiday with. And if you do run into a difficult problem, which we all do at different patches with children, other parents to pray, to bounce off wisdom, and possibly even share um, certain certain solutions. Um, I had a friend whose little boy was was having difficulty doing his homework. And the parents felt that they were just nagging him. And it was actually someone in our church who is single, 
who had been a, a school a housemaster, a schoolmaster, and he invited this child to do homework at his house twice a week. I had him back once a week. His grandparents did. So it's not only just the parents trying to work through difficult patches. We need that support right now. We are living in a difficult generation. But everybody else stays out all night. This is the 13, 14-year-old. Everybody else is allowed to drink. Everybody else is on drugs. No, but everybody else isn't. And that is a terrific help. Also, you can do things together as a group that, that um, you can't just provide as a family. If you're thinking of this center of gravity, I'm a great <coughs> believer in, in teaching children the structure of Christianity, whether it's the historicity of the Bible or the ideas, but they also need to have fun. Things like beach picnics and barbecues, um, country dancing or sharing their music or drama, they also need alternatives to the teenage culture which has become very, very destructive. These are some of the things I feel that some of our greatest helps were our friends, their lives. We have been friends to other people's children. They have been friends to our children. They are now, now that our children are in their 20s. It's a terrific investment for the future. Uh, making use of God's beautiful world and encouraging an appreciation of beauty and the good things. Encouraging a love of nature. I think children should have as much beauty as possible. If we're not living in a beautiful place, there are things, beautiful books, art. And in, in this book, I tell how Charlotte Mason <coughs> encourages us, for instance, to have children enjoy art. They love it. Little children will crawl up on your lap <coughs> and say, read me another story or another poem, or let's look at another book, or let's listen to another piece of music. We can give them treasures of culture which will stand them in good stead. They'll have a lot of credit in the bank so that they are not just needing sham, shallow, poor substitutes for what is good. Jesus came to give us abundant life, and that is one of our best resources. The, another thing is the simple routines of life are very wonderful. The meal having a meal, having a home. The Bible says about giving hospitality, but we are, are we hospitable to each other as a family? And if we're under too much stress, we won't be. The home should be a relief. My mother's written a book called um, What is a Family, which a lot of people have found very useful. But it should be good to come home, and it should be a place where you can talk over how you really feel. You don't have to be perfect at home. In fact, everybody knows you aren't. That's where you have your temper tantrums. Grown-ups as well as children. I mean, I, I have to laugh sometimes. Sometimes people in the Brie say to me, oh, you're so patient. And you, know, and you never get upset. And then I laugh and say, well, you should ask my children. They know the real Susan. Um, that, that we all need to belong and be loved and still be loved and still belong, even though we're not okay and even though we're not perfect. And we haven't got that perfect. Those simple, easy things which are, in fact, the, the treasures of life, then it, it should be able to be a place where, as we said, I mean, Ronald and I have used books a great deal. And 
other resources, for instance, going out, even if you don't have much money, you can, you can plan for an art exhibit or going to a local Gilbert and Sullivan, but building up a richness so that, that life is enjoyable and looking out for gifts. So the child who's artistic should have paper, good paper, good pens. There's ways of getting that. Um, children who are musical, we should do the best we can to encourage them to have music lessons and to be able to enjoy it. Children who are technical, etc. We've had children display gifts that we were unable to to fulfill. And actually, people have known us, we, we've used um, homeschool, as it's called. We've kept children out of school a total of 12 years, but we've had children in school far more than that, as you can imagine, between six of them. 12 single one years isn't very much. And we've been very thankful for other adults' gifts <coughs> to help children in areas that we couldn't. Our son, for instance, was very good at making things, and he was able to be in a school which had excellent workshops, and he was able to develop a gift and a, a um, aptitude towards that. We should look towards their aptitudes and try to develop them. Then there's work. Now, we live in a society which amuses its children and tends to think that what they want to do is quite important. But, in fact, um, a study, which I don't have the details of, but like many American <coughs> studies, took in more uh, children and subjects over more years than any other similar start, uh, study. It started with children in 1940, born in Boston, and it studied thousands of them until their middle age, I think until they were about 45. And it took children with single-parent families, inner city, impoverished, the privileged, those who ended up with excellent educations, etc. And they found out what was the single factor in all of these children's lives that contributed towards them developing into mature, balanced, functioning adults. And I was surprised. It was children who had worked in some way with their parents. It could have been as simple as laying the table every night, helping in the meal preparation, help cleaning their home, the gardening. Better still, I'm sure you have up here little um, Asian corner shops where the family is all working together, uh, selling the newspapers, the milk, the sweets, working together. Not so long ago, farmer children had chores to do on far farms, things that they had to do before they went to school in the morning or when they came home. You know what it does? It says to a child, you're part of a community. You're needed. You're worth something. And um, the, the commitment, the practice of the commitment, the com practice of togetherness. And I believe that this sense of team, of pulling together. Now, Christians also should do it with their children, since when we are ho offering hospitality, you say, this other person matters. My parents did it with me, and I've done it with my children, and that is sharing with them sometimes. So-and-so is very unhappy. Their best friend just committed suicide. And they've come to us. They need care. They need comfort. And that sense of togetherness. We're, I'm budging over. We're not going to have our time because there is. Now, you, you can overdo that 
it's very dangerous because there's so many needy people. Any little family is quite fragile. And as a couple, you have to think and pray about how much you can take on board. But it's, it's good for children to feel, let's help. Let's, um, let's make soup. Help me chop the carrots. Granny and Grandpa are ill. We're going to make them a pot of soup today. We're going to take it down. No, I won't be here. I won't be able to, to go out as you hoped because our grandparents are ill and I'm afraid you're going to have to go to somebody else's house. That sense of being involved in real life, of being respected enough to be trusted. Now, you have to be careful about it. Children should not bear the full weight of all the sorrows we know about as grown-ups. But appropriately, they need to know some days we find things very difficult Something's happy. I believe that's important, that we are co-human beings, if you like, that they are sharing with us in a corner of real life and um, <coughs> learn from it. Now, I'll just look at my notes and see if there's any. So we had the, um, <coughs> we had the mind, developing the mind, giving it nutrition, incidentally, I believe that, that Christian families, any family, Christian families have a responsibility of watching this schooling business and um, sort of balancing it out. I mean, there have been schools that I've treated as playgroups at times for children. They're getting lots of play and creativity at school. And we've actually done most of our work at home. <laughs> and um, I have sometimes done lessons in the morning with children and, and maybe extra things, very able children or children having difficulty like these dyslexic children. Schools um, can't do everything. Other schools actually aren't getting on very well with teaching children to think or to enjoy good books. And then other schools do too much of all that. And so you take all the pressure off at home and you make sure there's plenty of Play-Doh and plenty of dressing up and um, creativity, etc. So you try to sort of see what's happening in a child's life. We can't have perfect childhoods, you know, for our children. We can't have perfect schools. If you take them out of school, that's not perfect either. If you try to create another school, it won't be perfect. We just do the best we can with these alternatives, but we can balance it out a bit um, so that hopefully we can provide a little bit of what's missing. Um, we're, we're interested in their minds. We're interested in their character. God is interested in their character. God is interested in their heart. He wants them to be feeling people. To, to have that, they must be loved, of course, tremendously. God says, his pattern is, the, way he, the model he is, I loved you first, and then you loved me. And that's exactly the parental model. We give the children love, and uh, we look into their eyes, and we give them that warmth and affection, the listening that they are so longing for, and then it will be there, ready to pour out. I actually personally think that this is also encouraged by these books. We live in such a hard generation, and a hard-hearted generation. A lot of the earlier books are labeled as sentimental. I believe Christianity doesn't want us to be sentimental, actually. But it wants us to have a heart that feels. And uh, I know one of the things myself, I, this is how my parents brought me up, and um, they were Christians, and I thankful for many things. My father used to read to us. And when he got to a bit in the book that was moving, he would always, you, you felt he was just about to cry. You know, he was very moved by this. And he'd go on reading it and you knew he was, he was very moved. That is important. That is very important. That our children know that we care. Emotions, we have this heart. That develops the character. Tenderness. Uh, 
um, the, the sort of expecting the sweet things between uh, falling in love, which are now so out of date. I believe in reading some of the older books with children to give them a different view of male-female relationships, of courtship, etc. Something like Anne of Green Gables and the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and um, all sorts of Jane Austen, for that sake, doesn't matter. I mean, you've got something like Jane Eyre. You have another whole atmosphere of love and of commitment than we have around us today. And then this work. Now, one thing I do want to say is what about the family where the father is not employed and where perhaps there's this sense of stalemate because um, and possibly loss of respect. We as Christians do not believe that our responsible commitment is only worthwhile if we're paid for it. That is very, very important. We, we give ourselves, sometimes we're paid for the worthwhile things we do and sometimes we're not. We're not doing it. The money is important. We need our jobs. But say if you don't have a job, we can still take on responsibility. We can still be committed to it. Full time. And I believe that the pattern that we should show our children is full time commitment. A lot of the work we do in the Bree isn't paid. But I don't think that matters. I mean, it's sometimes a little bit funny thinking of the model of working parents when our seven year old once was asked, to write a little story in school about what daddy did, and some daddies were this and that. They all did something, kept shops or were pilots of airplanes or something. And our little boy wrote, my daddy doesn't work. <laughs> he sits at home and talks to people all day. <laughs> he likes to climb hills. <laughs> that was both very well anyway. There was something he liked to do. Of course, it wasn't really work. And so sometimes those of us who are in Christian work can be seen by our children be quite an embarrassment as well. I mean, we don't have a proper job at all. Uh, I don't think the. I think that we can still be a fully committed and responsible uh, working unit, even though if at that point not easy. And again, something for support and to be upfront about. It is an experience our children may well go through. And how we handle it will be a very important um, example within the body of a local church. That um, the sense of worth and dignity and commitment. Maybe this is a good point to actually say something about single parenting, which is becoming, will be more and more common, partly because people don't stick to their marriages um, through thick and thin the way they used to. The number of single parents who start out their families this, that way in these days, etc., perhaps later on regretting it. But whatever reason, we will have more and more single parenting. It's, it's tough. It's very difficult. And we can't do everything. It's a, it is a handicapped family. The family God has given has a father and a mother. And if you're without a father or without a mother, you've lost something. And yet... The wonderful message of the Bible is God is behind us in our difficult lives. Whether our jobs don't work out and our careers or we're left bringing up a family on our own, whatever. And we as Christian friends and support groups should be there as a second backup when things go wrong. That is what it means to be loving each other. That's what it means to be communities. And sometimes to have good ideas. 
I mean, there were a lot of schools started in this country, very good schools and very good communities for particular need like that. Children who didn't have a family um, with two parents. And there, there is um, a lot of possibility for creative thinking in these areas. So, for instance, a single mother who has to go out to work, what sort of Christian way could we perhaps create an alternative family for the young children? I know of something which wasn't particularly Christian, but which was good, where a group of people bought just an ordinary terrace house. And instead of being a nursery school-like an institution, the children could ride their tricycles and go out and get the milk in off the step and go upstairs and have us sleep in the bedroom and stand on a chair and chop carrots for lunch. We need to be creative as we have need in our society. Um, well, actually, that's more or less various. The, the one other thing I have is this: the question of school alternatives. Not all schools fit all children. Not all children fit all schools. <laughs> um, it can't be perfect if one comes to a situation where there's a real breakdown. This is why we took our first child out of school. Um, in both instances, it was because of dyslexia. And the function of school, the child just is like a square peg in a round hole. I don't think the only choice should be whether one has enough money for an independent school or not. There are other cooperative ways of sorting it out. And Ronald and I have been involved with parents who have taken it on themselves and parents who have created, for instance, cooperatives where they have provided small alternatives. It is a very Christian concern, the lives of children, and not forcing children to, say, feel stupid or um, somehow almost non-entities because they're in an environment which is completely wrong. The other thing I watch out for is teenagers who cannot cope with the 20th century if, situation. If I saw a teenager going really down the dra drain, starting to sleep around, uh, didn't care anymore, everything was boring, didn't try, tell you they would be out of, if school was an ingredient, and pray to God for an alternative environment. School and its achievements, first of all, when kids get like this very often, that goes by the board anyway. But we just now, and in the last 10 years, I felt increasingly we need to be on the alert for children who don't swim in our society but start sinking. In which case, I believe it is our responsibility as Christians to think through what we can do. There, there isn't any easy solution. But God is on our side. He loves these children. He doesn't want them to disappear and be sort of swamped by a flood, which is too much for them. Yes, they may be weak, but after all, you are weak when you're 13, 14, aren't you? And if things haven't worked out, and that shouldn't be the last word. We shouldn't feel fatalistic about it. Christians through the generations have thought creatively about what to do with their children when things didn't work out. And we certainly can do the same. Okay, that still does leave us a quarter of an hour for some questions. And Ronald, are you going to come up too? Yes. In, in this postmodernist society that we're living in, do you think that there are certain areas that are really missing in our educational syllabus that we should be including? Do you want to come oh. up to the mic? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I, I think the, the, the problem is, is, um, is further back, really. It's that 
the church hasn't got much uh, of a clue about it and and uh, not preparing people to when they go into the schools. Now, your question, though, is well, what about the schools themselves? Um, and this raises the whole question of what influence can Christians have into the schools uh, and how would they address the particular uh, ideas of postmodernism. I mean, you've got two very different questions, I mean, the two different issues there. Is the church preparing people as they go into the university, etc., to know what, what, it's, what it's all about? So it doesn't just come out of the fog and they just get caught up in it and, well, everyone's doing saying this, our teachers are teaching this, etc., but to give them a, a clue, a, a sort of an understanding of it ahead of time. Uh, the schools themselves, John. I don't know. You're you're in this business, but I, I mean, you're really asking a question which I don't think has been addressed very much in any of our education, namely uh, the philosophical undergirdings of our society historically, and then what's changed and so on. There's just been this assumption. Well, of course, everyone believes in God further back, and not and not actually dealing with the the new issues, um, and and we're way beyond that. And so I would have thought. Someone like John, in, in this context, uh, ought to be trying to think of ways in which to prepare uh, uh, or help the, the youngsters to to see what's happening in, in the wider context philosophically. Um, John, do you want to speak to it? What a huge, huge topic there, isn't it? First of all, uh, I think churches uh, themselves don't equip. Uh, their members to understand what is happening in the culture around them. I think that's important. I think uh, there's a role there. In my experience, churches as a whole don't, don't take schooling seriously at all. I mean, they, they don't equip their members to actually take what is happening in their school seriously. Um, um, I always feel that uh, <coughs> disappointed, I think, that Christians ask so few questions of their schools. I really do feel very disappointed about Absolutely. that. They tend to be silent when they should be active. Not in an aggressive way, but in a concerned way. There's tremendous scope because of the emptiness, I think, at the heart of things today. For parents who are prepared, Christian parents are prepared to, to get in there and to be supportive in a general sense of schools and in that process, to be asking questions, by asking questions, challenging the the presuppositions mm -hmm. very often of the teachers, is very often the, it's built on sand, shifting sand. Yeah. Tremendous scope there, really. It's and we have a tremendous role as as, as teachers in here to try to equip as well our own children to understand what's happening in their culture to see where biblical truth relates to that. But it's a, it's a day in itself, that question, isn't it? Yeah. Just to say one more thing, John, I mean, there was the assumption that Christianity was true. Yeah. That's what we were talking about, Christian heritage. Right. And, and that was the environment within which education was going on. And those are the sort of the fixed points. Well, of course God's created everything. Of course this is right and wrong. There are the Ten Commandments hanging on the wall. You know, that kind of a thing. And uh, now that's completely gone. And the church has been slow to address this, even <coughs> within its own life. Uh, our colleague in Holland, his daughter, um, who's now about 21, 22, they, 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 they have a college there which 
uh, youngsters coming out of school can go into for a year, and they do practical stuff like typing, etc., 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 and at the same time, they're introduced so that this is what you're going to be told at university. Be prepared. A Christian situation. I mean, amazing. But, I mean, that. what can you expect of schools now, which are postmodernist? You know what I mean? Uh, who, who's going to unravel this to, to the <coughs> Christians who are there and to the others? So... If that's a situation, is it if you have your own children, is it wiser to come to bring them to a, um, a, a church with a Christian ethics, a school with a Christian ethics like this one, on built under biblical foundations, or should we, you know, continue to uh, encourage and help our children? Should we just forget about the rest of the schools and not make an influence on those? What do we do? Mm, well, I mean, I I would think that we we all are going to do different things, aren't we? And one of the problems, say, that Christians in education in the States did was that people said, we have to make Christian schools, that's the only thing to do. And then others said, we all have to stay in mainstream education, that's the only thing to do. Others said, no, no, we'll take our children out. In actual fact, if you do what Ronald said, and that is, we as parents take primary responsibility for our own children, we can't solve everybody's problems. And we pray about it, and we do the best that we can for our own family. And that might even within one family be three or four or five different kinds of solutions, which is what we have found at different times. Different things are right. And different children. I mean, we have had children actually positively flourishing, say, in a regular um, sixth-form college uh, because they are up against the questions, say, studying English literature, etc., and living at home, they are able to bring these things home and discuss them. You will have another child who actually needs that doesn't seem that that does not seem to be working, and they also need the character building and the expectations on the moral side, say, uh, from a Christian school or possibly something quite different and quite alternative. So I think I think it would be different solutions, and I think in churches it's very important not to judge each other. You get people being all uppity. Because some people um, find that they are needing, or should they feel they should do one thing with their family, and I, I think that there'll be quite a broad response to the parenting. That's just what I think. Yeah. I just thought when you, you take, if you come to a conclusion about something like perhaps you have about television, you think, well, that's just not the way. Can you come to that sort of conclusion about your children's education in this similar sort of way? And you think, well, that's just. Not working on your own. Got to encourage people who have uh, gifts to go into these different areas. But having said that, as with that um, <coughs> parallel that I drew in the sixth century with Benedict and so on, monastic communities, I do believe that when a culture gets to a, a certain mm. stage of disintegration, there is a greater need for the specifically Christian response, yeah. whether it's in hospitals or uh, day, day schools, you know, uh, nurseries, and all this kind of thing. Yeah. I think also Sunday school and, and youth group needs to take maybe a different tact. And that um, instead of just plodding through a syllabus, um, which is a combination of biblical teaching and then personal devotion and maybe doing some good things, actually tackling the problems they're up against. So we'll say a lot of people say God doesn't exist. Why, why do we think God exists? Most of your friends don't believe the Bible's true. Why is it true? And um, we have had, for instance, children, maybe five, six, come and sit round a table, give them a hot drink, a cold drink, give them biscuits, and have a, 
a real discussion time in a small group with somebody who has thought through the questions. So I think that's another way which is can be church-based, where we can help perhaps um, be a buffer between yep. the, the weight of our society and biblical teaching and, and start working on the, that no-man's land that exists in between. Do you want to make a comment there? Yes. Um, as, as a parent, I feel very intimidated, really, by um, the whole, um, by teachers and, and the educational experts. Now, I didn't feel that before my children went to school, and I did a lot with them and found that they loved learning, and um, I felt quite happy with that role as, you know, at the preschool. But since the children have gone to school, really, I, I, I feel that, you know, I keep hearing about the national curriculum. And, and various things, and, and there are some things that I feel <coughs> are not right in, in what, they're, what they're learning at school. One of, one of the things that, that I feel instinctively is wrong is the amount of homework that they're having to do, which has completely destroyed our family, family time, because they spend so much time doing homework, and I spend so much time nagging them to do homework, that what was our family time has gone now. Um, and yet, I feel, well, what do I know? Um, uh, these are the experts, and these people, you know, say that they've got to do this amount of homework if they um, And I feel very intimidated by that. I don't know if other parents feel the same. They're the professionals. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm a parent. I, th I think that educationists are, we, we, we are in a very vulnerable position. It's the same going to a doctor, and they say, oh, but, you know, you're, you're just... Um, encouraging this child to be a hypochondriac or something, but you're actually quite sure there's something wrong. Or we were told this with her dyslexic child first time around. Now there's a lot more known about it, but she was 30, she's 32 now, and in the dark ages in Hampshire, people said that was just a myth, and actually she was more or less mentally retarded. That's what we were told. And she was treated like that in school. We knew that we had a very gifted child. In fact, now she has a degree and she is a very gifted person. But sometimes one has to listen to the dis-ease we have inside. When the experts say, no, your child does not have anything wrong with their ears, we had this happen. And it is intimidating for a doctor to say that, go home and it's perfectly all right. And you say, but I'm sure there must, this can't be normal. And we do need to trust our instincts sometimes. That's better, um, even if we're wrong than giving up too soon, because we are actually closer to the children. And um, it's, there's not always something you can do about it. Like with homework, the children are in a system, which is, that is part of the system. And so you can go and talk. But at a certain stage, if you, you're going with a particular school, even if there's bits of it that are difficult, you have to go with it. And that's a more major decision. Uh, it's worth following up. I mean, this is just purely from the parental side. <laughs> Uh, and more or less, um, we took a child out of school over homework. This was the dyslexic child because he was being taken out of playtime to being given extra work and then sent home with his ordinary class homework and extra homework. And the whole thing was so wrong. He, who was so exhausted that he would practically shake to try to write, read and write, was then deprived of his playtimes and then expected to do two lots of homework. He just blossomed when he didn't have school anymore. He's at university now, and he, I believe if he had stayed struggling in that way, inappropriately, 
for another year. He would have hated learning, he would have given up, he would have turned into a, a real social problem too. And so, and sometimes you, it calls for something dramatic, and sometimes you just think this is inconvenient. But we, I guess we can go with it. Well, no, that's a, a mother's view. I, I just have a mistrust myself of experts, I guess. <laughs> and um, I, I, th I think you ought to be bold in that situation, I think, and uh, um, in, a, in a courteous way to ask the questions. Uh, that's, I, I mean, I, I used to be surrounded by, you know, experts. They might have been called education advisors or inspectors or, or whoever. Uh, and it's all very intimidating and you hear the language, don't you? And, and you feel disabled by it all. But by just persistently and courteously asking the questions, <clears throat> you very often uncover something there and find nothing. So, I mean, I would, I would, <laughs> it's the emperor's clothes. Yeah, yeah, it's the emperor's clothes. It's the emperor's clothes. And uh, I'd just encourage you to, to not to be afraid of that and to be persistent and pleasant and courteous and, and, and those things. And uh, I think you will actually break down barriers. I am I'm quite confident about that. Um, there aren't all that many experts, really, when you get down to it. My, I can tell you this, head teachers by and large are, are quite terrified of the persistent parent. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, the complaints I get are not about too much homework, but nearly always about too little. It's an encouraging uh, thing to have heard that, yes. <laughs> Yes, maybe. Just interesting that you didn't talk about obedience and punishment, which to me is, well, to us really, yes, is um, I just can't do it. I'm not consistent. You know, you want to do the whole oh, yes pocket money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you <laughs> well, I'm afraid, yes, it's funny that I just leave that out because, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a, was brought up in Switzerland where you really did obey and grown ups were, it was terribly important. And I just sort of assume that. Isn't that awful? Because actually, I believe children are much happier if they learn that, it became clearer and clearer to me now that I've had the opportunity to go on and on being a parent, extra. And it became so clear that what it, a three-year-old saying, but I don't want to. I said, well, doesn't matter what you want, dear. It's what is right. And that became really, really clear. What is right? And I mean, I agree with Susanna Wesley in that, that, that children can learn to obey. And I wasn't always consistent. I mean, there's supposed to be things that we did. I look back, it's one of the things, you know, a day when I was pressed and had a headache and it was hurried, children had to be different than the days where there seemed to be a lot, a lot of time. And that's not fair. So we're not like God. And that's a little bit difficult. But still, it's good for children to know they can obey. And I, I think today we're, we are being intimidated as parents. So we're made to feel guilty if we give a, say, a two or three year old a smack. Or a spanking that makes them cry, say, when they're five years old. Is that abuse? And whole generations of us grew up very well. So fairly, I think there is a even a godly sense. We should have a bit of a fear of God. 
in our obedience of God. And I don't think it's bad for little children to think, I'm really afraid. You know, if he, if she says, that's it, I'm afraid to go over the line because then what something's going to happen that I'm not going to like.